Good morning. Um, today we are looking at Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if any has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Courtney. Uh, Matt, we good? Sorry, I... <laughs> One of our volunteer guitar players is Daniel Shiflett, who uh, serves in Kidtown sometimes. Y'all maybe met him literally every Sunday that he plays when he's walking out and I'm waiting up here. He hands me one of his guitar picks, branded guitar picks. I have 40 of these and his name is Daniel Shiflett and they say, Shif happens. Uh, so I'm just off a little bit. I'm throwing this away. But anyway, sorry. Um, he just threw me off right before I came up on stage, as he loves to do. Hi, good morning. Um, welcome to Midtown. Uh, my name is Elliot Cherry. I'm the pastor here at our 12 South location. Um, if you're new or visiting with us uh, this morning, um, we have been in a fall series on the book of Colossians. Um, it is this little miniature power-packed book that the Apostle Paul writes. Um, he actually writes it from prison in Rome. He's awaiting trial in Rome, uh, and he hears of this church plant. He hears of this small little church in the small town of Colossae in Asia Minor, and he's in prison in Rome, so he writes this letter across the Mediterranean Sea to these young new believers in Colossae. And the point of the whole book, he says this over and over again throughout the book, is that I'm writing this letter to mature you, young church. I'm writing this letter to you to encourage you. I'm writing this letter to build you up. I'm writing this letter to strengthen you, that you would know yourself to be more and more complete in the mystery of God's grace. That God's grace, the gospel of King Jesus, the grace of God offered to the church in Jesus is this profound mystery that you will never fully understand and you will never get to the bottom of, but I want to grow you up in your knowledge of that mystery. And so kind of each week he's, he's uh, taking a deeper dive or maybe a different angle on the diamond of God's mystery of grace. And he's saying the more knowledge you have of this, the more you experience this and lean on this and stand on this and build your life around this, you will be more mature and you will grow up in your faith. And so in today's uh, few short verses, uh, these three verses, um, Paul is continuing the theme that he began in last week's section where Matt Avery talked to us about Paul's words. It's this, it's this clothing metaphor that he begins earlier in chapter three where he literally says, take off, Christian, these old clothes that you've been wearing take off the old self, and then he begins this new section, verse 12, he begins it with these words, continuing the clothing metaphor. He says, put on, Christian, the new self. It's this clothing metaphor, it's this wardrobe language where he's talking about taking off the old clothes you used to wear, and now, Christian, you're a new creation. Your new self has a new set of clothes to wear. So he's continuing with this theme, and we're going to look at two things about this theme of taking off the old self and putting on the new self, taking off the old clothes and putting on the new clothes for the Christian. We're going to talk about two things before we get to the communion table this morning. And here are the two things. The first is the beauty and the challenge of these new clothes, the beauty and the challenge of these new clothes of the new self, and two, the power to put them on, 
the power to put on the new clothes of the new self. So first, look back with me as he continues this theme, starting in verse 12. He says, put on then, and then he addresses the people as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, and then skipping down to verse 14, and above all these, put on, there's that clothing language again, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Paul says put on, and then he goes on to list these virtues. Here again, what Paul is commanding the Christian to wear as their new clothes. Put on these virtues, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, endurance, that's the bearing with one another, forgiveness and love. Eight virtues he lists here. Eight new clothing items for the Christian to put on. These garments of the new self, he says, they must be worn by the Christian, these Christian virtues. Last week when Matt was talking about the old self, the old clothes, the old garments, there were lists of old garments Put away all malice, put away all rage, put away all lust, put away all sexual immorality. Those are the old clothes. And now he, he, he doesn't just leave uh, us naked. He says, take off your old clothes, but put on these new clothes, these new virtues that are to be put on and worn. And if you kind of step back and look at the eight virtues that he's talking about, what the Christian is to wear in their new self, it paints this kind of general picture of what the member of Christ's new covenant community, what Christ's kingdom, what members of Christ's church are to be like in the context of their new community. These clothes that the Christian wears are all, if you look at them, they're all uh, virtues to be practiced in relationship with other people. These are the goals. These are the, this is the beautiful picture he's painting of what the church is to look like. And it's implied here But it should be stated here that these virtues, none of these virtues that he lists that we just read through, the compassion and kindness and patience and forgiveness, none of those things are needed if you're in utopia or if you're in isolation. If you live all alone and never interact with anybody, you don't need forgiveness because there's no one to forgive. If you live in utopia, there's no one to have patience with because you won't ever need it. And so the context should be clear. Paul is writing about, here's what it means to be the Christian community in the context of being in a community that's full of people that are just as sinful as you are. And so he's saying this, all these virtues manifest themselves in the context of relationships. And you don't need these virtues if you don't know anybody. You don't need these virtues if you're not walking with other people, if you're not walking with other people. Broken, sinful human beings. You don't need patience. You don't need forgiveness. You don't need humility. You don't need endurance if you're not walking with people that aren't broken. So the implication here is Paul is talking about what it means to be the church in the context of community. And what is noteworthy, again, about these lists of virtues, as Paul is guiding the Christian in their virtues as they play out in relationships, He is guiding the Christian, and this is what makes it uniquely Christian. He's guiding the Christian to think about these virtues, to think about the new self, the new clothes to put on, and he's focusing exclusively on the individual and not other people. Meaning this, nowhere in here does Paul say to focus on them out there and what problems they have. None of the virtues are listed as, hey, you should get really good at telling other people what they're doing wrong. 
That's not one of his virtues. Paul is focused on you. Paul is focused on me. He's not focused on everyone out there and what they might be doing and how you should encounter uh, them and letting them know that they're wrong about what they're doing. Paul is focused on you. Paul is focused on the individual who is to have these virtues of forgiveness and patience and compassion, and he's not focused on the people that may be causing the problems. He's not focused on the people who may need forgiveness. He's focusing on the people that need to be granting forgiveness. Paul is commanding the offended parties in relationships, not the offending parties in relationships which is the uniquely Christian aspect of this whole list of new Christian clothes, of new garments to put on. Paul is saying this loud and clear. The place to begin in any relational context for a Christian, the place to begin in any relational context for a Christian is with yourself and not with other people. That they're not the ones that need to change. You are. It may even mean in a relational context that the offending party has little, if any, awareness that they even need to be shown patience or forgiveness or compassion. Paul here is saying that part of putting on the new self looks like you and I taking the initiative in putting on these virtues as we interact with other people, maybe even offending parties, rather than waiting for other people to come and invite us into practicing these virtues. He's saying, hey, put on forgiveness, put on compassion, not with an asterisk that says, put on compassion when someone comes to you with a relational uh, problem. Or put on forgiveness when someone comes and asks you for forgiveness. He just says, put on forgiveness. He's talking about us. Basically he's saying, hey, anyone can hold a grudge, but the mark of the Christian is that they do not wait to put on these virtues. They practice these things. They're, they're, they're proactive in stepping into these virtues. They're not waiting on the other party to change before they practice these virtues and put on these new clothes. None of the virtues say, figure out how to help other people how big their sin is. None of the virtues say, start with everyone else's problems and then we'll talk about you. All the virtues start with you. Start with the individual. Start with the Christian. That's part of what Paul's doing is he's pulling their old self, their old clothes, which loves to focus on everybody else. And he's saying, put on the new clothes, which looks in the mirror first and talks about how you might need to change first. And included in this list is maybe the one that stings the most for us. Paul says here that if you've been sinned against, if you've been offended, if you've been wounded, if you've been hurt, if you've been betrayed, if you've been treated poorly in the context of relationships, and by the way, this is any relationship, relationship with your parents, relationship with your kids, relationship with your spouse, relationship with your roommates, relationship with your neighbors. If you've been treated poorly on any level, here's what he says, and this is the one that hurts the most, I think, for us. Forgive them. See, these beginning virtues, um, I would imagine, when he starts listing the compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience, everybody's going, yeah, thumbs up to all those things. Those, those sound great. I'm interested in stepping into what would it look like to be a kinder person. But most, none of us um, would, would look at this list and celebrate the command from Paul when he says, not only put on all those things, you have to forgive them too. Like, kindness is great as long as I don't have to forgive you. <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can do great at just saying kind things to you and keeping my mouth shut, and now I'm, I'm doing the kind thing by not losing my mind on you. Isn't that kind? But then Paul's going way beneath the surface, way deep into the heart, and he's saying, you also have to forgive them for the offense that they've done. You have to forgive them for the hurt that they've caused. 
Forgiveness is a term that literally means canceling the debt. Canceling the debt, meaning when someone sins against you or someone sins against me, there is a debt that is incurred. They owe you something. And to forgive someone literally means that you would cancel the debt that they owe you. You cancel whatever they owe you. Which when you and I do that, if we step into forgiveness and we cancel debt that people owe us because of relational breakdown or relational hurt or relational wounds, when we step into forgiveness and we cancel the debt, here's what happens. It, it, does, it's not, it doesn't just poof into non-existence, the debt that was there. When you cancel a debt, someone still has to pay it. It doesn't just magically reappear and it's as if it never happened. So here's what it means when you forgive someone. You're saying, I'll take the hit on this. I'll pay the cost. For example, if I owe you $100, which I'll get to you next week, I promise. If I owe you $100 and you come to me and you say, I'm canceling the debt of what you owe me, you no longer owe me $100. That doesn't mean that $100 somehow magically reappears in your bank account just because you canceled it with me. Someone takes the hit. And if you cancel the $100 against me, who's paying for it ultimately? You are. You're making the payment on it because you're saying, I'll suffer the loss of that for your sake. And so relationally speaking, emotionally speaking, there is a debt that is incurred when people sin against us, when people hurt us, when they wound us. And forgiveness says, I'm canceling the debt of what you owe me and not requiring payment for it. In fact, I'll pay it. I'll take the hit for it. So what does someone owe you when they've sinned against you? What debt is incurred when they've treated you poorly, when they've betrayed you, when they've hurt you, when they've wounded you? What's the debt that is the, of what they owe you? Well, first of all, they owe you remorse. They owe you the remorse of acknowledging the fact that they've sinned against you. They also owe you the damages lost. And that could be literal. Like someone could literally owe you money and they, they're acknowledging I'm forgiving the physical monetary debt. But they also owe you some relational currency. They owe you some emotional currency. They also owe you the comfort of empathy and sympathy because what they've done in sinning against you because you're an image bearer that bears God's image and you have his dignity all over you because you are his image bearer. They owe you the loss of marring God's image in you. There is a debt that is created. There's dozens of other things that in interpersonal wounding and in interpersonal relationships, debt is always being accrued by sinning against each other. And so we may be fans of forgiveness in theory, like, yes, everyone should forgive. That should be great. But normally... If we're honest about this, there's this debt that is accrued in relationships. There's, there's wounds that are done, and now one party owes the other party something. And normally, we require a payment from the offending party before we forgive them. Like, there's this principal debt amount, and I need to see you putting some dollars towards the principal. I need to see you paying down some of the debt before I offer forgiveness. We require that they begin to pay it off before we cancel it. What kind of payments do we require of people before we forgive them? What kind of payments towards the debt created do we require that people begin to pay before we forgive them? If you can't think of any, borrow from mine. Here's some that I require. Here's some payments towards the principle that I require. I require that you acknowledge that you've hurt me. Put a little bit down on the debt. Show me that you understand that you hurt me by showing some remorse and maybe we'll talk about canceling the rest of the debt. Prove to me how sorry you are for what you've done to me. And then maybe we'll talk about canceling the rest of the debt. 
And here's maybe one that, that is this moving target for anybody that sinned against me that knows full well. Here's this moving target that they can never know if they're hitting or not that I require them to make payments on. I require that you understand just how badly you've hurt me. Good luck getting to the point that I need you to get to in that, by the way. But I require that you fully understand how bad this hurt. And now we'll talk about canceling the rest of the debt. We have these subtle payment plans that we put people on, like a little bit of principal, a little bit of interest, and maybe over you know, 10 years we can pay the whole thing off. But I need you to be showing some down payments and you be seeing how you're actively moving towards paying off this debt before I offer the cancellation of the debt. And we say things like this in our hearts, only if these requirements are done will I begin to forgive you. And here's the problem with that. That puts forgiveness, that puts the cancellation of the debt on them, that they're required then to do something in order to have the debt canceled. But Paul here nowhere says anything about them. Paul says, you forgive them. We're not to make forgiveness, canceling the debt dependent on other parties. Paul doesn't even use the word them. He's talking about you. He says, hey, Christian, your new clothes, part of putting on the new self and these new clothes is you proactively forgiving before any debts have been paid down at all. So what would it mean to truly cancel a debt that someone owes you emotionally and relationally? It means that without a hint of bitterness or self-righteousness, without an ounce of superiority, or a seed of a grudge, you take the initiative and you cancel the debt of what they owe you. Meaning this, you pay for it. You take the hit. Meaning this, you treat them now like they owe you nothing. Now, please hear what I'm not saying. Forgiveness does not mean that after you cancel the debt that you have to be best friends. Forgiveness also doesn't mean that after you cancel the debt, you have to act like there was never a scar, never a wound, or never any pain caused. Forgiveness actually, side note for some relational health, forgiveness is the doorway to boundaries, healthy boundaries. Because once you forgive someone, guess what you can do? You can put up a boundary and say, I actually don't require any payments from you anymore. I don't require anything of you, but I'm going to keep this boundary because this is what's healthy and this is what's safe. But only if you've forgiven someone can you put up a healthy boundary. Most boundaries we put up are a result of not forgiving people. We want to punish them that they haven't paid the debt yet. And so we put up a boundary to make them start paying. But healthy boundaries come after you've forgiven someone. Forgiveness does mean that truly, ultimately, in your hearts, you know that they don't owe you anything because you've canceled their debt. Even if, and this is hard, even if, They've never even acknowledged the debt. Even if you've never told them that you've paid it off for them. And forgiveness is something um, that in relationships, yes, it has to happen one time. It also has to keep happening. Like it may have to happen thousands of times because they might keep occurring or incurring debt. You have to forgive someone further in Christian language. You have to continue putting on the t-shirt of forgiveness that says, this is what I've been called to put on in my new self, practicing canceling the debt. So go to your mind's eye for a minute. I want you to imagine someone who has hurt you. I want you to imagine someone who has sinned against you. I want you to imagine someone who has incurred a debt against you. 
And now imagine in your mind's eye the pain they've caused you, maybe the arrogance even they've displayed by not ever acknowledging the pain they've caused you and the debt they're into you. Imagine someone who has made no payments in your mind on the debt they owe you. Now imagine canceling all of that. You require, you demand nothing from them anymore. You cancel what they owe you. And, and, to add to the weight of what Paul's saying here, Paul also says here, remember that list of virtues before forgiveness came up? Just one of them. You have to put on compassion with that forgiveness. Meaning, the person who owes you something, the debt that they owe against you, not only are you canceling that, Paul would command you to say, I want you to see them, see the pain they're in, see how hurt they are, and I want you to feel sympathy and empathy for them. I want you to take pity on them and feel sadness for their story. And Paul here says, here are your new clothes, Christian. Put these on. And I would imagine that, and maybe I'm wrong about this. I would love for you to stand up. We'll celebrate you if you don't fall in this category. But I would imagine that no one in the room, when I started listing all those things and that practice activity of forgiving and having compassion on those, no one jumped up and goes, man, that's so easy. Why didn't you say that earlier? I would have totally forgiven them a long time ago if I had just known. Like it's, it, it's not something that comes naturally and no one's excited to go do that. It sounds terrible. It sounds painful in your hearts to actually have to try to practice this, which is why Paul commands it. Because it's incredibly counterintuitive to how I normally think, feel, and act. This little exercise is incredibly difficult to imagine. And the old clothes, the old clothes of bitterness, the old clothes of holding a grudge, the old clothes of focusing on them, are so well-worn, they're they're, they're like custom-tailored fit to my old self. They slide right on, and bitterness is so much easier and so much more comfortable to wear. I wore that t-shirt for years. My sin loves that wardrobe, and the old clothes are so comfortable. Because here's the reality, if we're really honest, brutally honest, my sin nature loves, 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 loves keeping you in my debt. Do you know why? Because I love feeling better than you. I love feeling superior to you. Do you know the greatest way to feel superior to someone? Keep them in your debt. It's really easy to feel better than people that owe you something. I love feeling superior. And so keeping you in my debt feeds this poisonous, this, this, this toxic joy of victimizing myself. I love getting to do that. That shirt is so well-worn, and so I love putting on the old clothes. I love it. And it's why this, this, how dare Paul command me to forgive them before they've even asked for it. They don't even know how much debt they've incurred. And Paul's telling me not only to forgive them, but to have compassion on them. So it makes this so difficult because all of these virtues, like we said at the beginning, have the focus on me and my actions towards those in my community towards my wife, towards my coworkers, towards my neighbor, towards the people that, that are out there somewhere that in, in, in social media world that I love scrolling Twitter and feeling better than everybody. Like I love the feeling of superiority of people that, that I can stand just like one step up from them and say, man, you're getting it so wrong and I'm better than you. And so you now owe me the acknowledgement that I'm right and you're wrong. And Paul here says, those are your old clothes. Those are your old clothes. Those don't fit you anymore. Put on the new clothes. 
But one of the most bloody battlefields in the war between old clothes and new clothes, in the war between old self and new self, is that my old self is constantly, consistently, daily, wanting me to focus on everyone out there instead of myself. That's what the war looks like, is that it's always gonna be forcing us to look out there for the world's problems and say, man, the world would be such a better place if they would just change. That's old self, that's old garment language. It's so easy to keep the focus on other people when they are in my debt. This gets painfully revealed to me in different seasons, different days. <laughs> the most recent example uh, that came to mind as I was uh, being undressed by this passage, literally, is um, that anytime my wife and I are leaving for a trip of some sorts, which we went on a trip last week, it was great. Uh, but anytime we're like approaching the, the, the takeoff day, um, I have this... <laughs> heightened awareness. I have this crystal clarity of all of my rights, of all the ways that she's not doing it the way I want her to be doing it, of all the ways I'm really better at her, at, at her than, than doing all the things on getting us out of town. So I start saying things like this, well, I'm packed already. How come you're not? Or I start th saying things like this, I asked you to get that checklist done. What, what, what's going on? Like, are you too stressed? And no, no, don't treat me poorly when you're stressed because I deserve better than that. Like all the things that happen on, on the days and hours leading up before out of town, like, like uh, did you not see all that I did to help us get ready for the kids to be ready to go to? Like, I, did you not notice? And so all these little subtle ways that come out and it's this, this, this subtle way that the old shirt just slides right on because I love the way that it smells and I love the way that it feels as I go, yeah, you owe me something. You owe me not being as good at getting out of town as I am. Like, what are we talking about? But it's this, it's this whole idea where my superiority just rises up just a little and I get to focus on somebody else's problems because the old self is constantly wanting me to focus on other people's problems and not my own. And to believe that the world and my life would be so much different and so much sweeter and so much easier if they would change. But in Christianity, we're called to something radically, counterculturally offensively different than that. Here's what Paul is getting at in this list of these eight virtues by having us keep the focus on us. He's saying, we have to believe as a Christian that for beauty and change to happen in the world, I have to admit that I am the primary contributor to the evil and wretchedness and horror that exists in the world. Christianity will not let me start with you. Christianity starts with me always. Log in my own eye, speck in yours, Jesus said. Now, it doesn't mean, please hear what Paul's not saying. This is relational maturity, emotional maturity. That vantage point of starting with me does not mean that I have to act like you're perfect and you never mess up. In fact, for Paul here to say that you need to practice patience and compassion and forgiveness to other people, for Paul here to say that means on some level, you're gonna have to name the sins that other people are committing. You're gonna have to acknowledge the fact that they've incurred a debt and not done something right. It doesn't mean forgiving other people does not mean not acknowledging their faults. It actually means lovingly being able to acknowledge their faults. Here's what all of this means, though, this, this, this perspective change that Paul is getting at. It means that the Christian, in any relational, cultural, or societal breakdown, any of it, the Christian is not allowed to believe that I am also not contributing to this problem. You are not allowed to believe that if you're a Christian that the problem is all out there or all on your spouse or all on your kids or all on your parents or all on them out there. Paul doesn't use the word them. 
He's talking about you and talking about me. And maybe, maybe the problem that you and I are contributing to the toxic cocktail in the world right now, maybe the problem that we're contributing is holding on so tight to bitterness and superiority by not canceling people's debts against us. Do you know how bad that is for a community for you to hold on to bitterness and hold on to superiority and thinking that you're better than other people? That will destroy a community. It will destroy a neighborhood. It will destroy a city. Or maybe what you're contributing to the toxic cocktail that's going on in the world, maybe what you're contributing is the fact that when you hear all the things I'm saying, the first thing you think about is someone else that needs to learn how to cancel a debt, which would be thinking about other people and not thinking about you. Like, this is not a sermon that you listen to with your elbows and go, did you hear that, honey? He's talking to you. That's not what this is talking about. But maybe if that's your first thought is, man, Man, my mom really needs to hear this sermon because she's keeping me in debt and she needs to learn how to cancel it. Like that, maybe that's the toxicity that you're contributing to the world. The focus is almost never on you and your need to change. It's an indicator, perhaps, that you're still wearing your old clothes. Paul here says, put on the new self, Christian. Put on the new garments, the new virtues that deal with you, and talk about what you need to change, and talk about where you need to grow. And when you do that, you will make the world a beautiful place, and you will be a part of bringing God's kingdom and God's reign to earth. These are the clothes of the Christian. This is the, gar- this is the wardrobe of people who belong to Christ's kingdom. But maybe what's even crazier about Paul's admonishing and imploring and commanding to put on these new clothes, maybe what's even crazier about all this is the logic that Paul uses, the logical step as to why this needs to happen. He says this in multiple ways in our little section, but here's what he says. It's because of who you are now, because of your new identity, put these clothes on. Because of who you are, wear this now. These new clothes fit your new self perfectly. And as much as you love that favorite old sweater that you used to wear of the old self, it actually, actually, the old clothes, they actually don't fit you anymore. You are such a new creation that the old garments that you used to love to wear and you love the nostalgia of putting them on, they actually don't fit you anymore. What fits you, because it goes in line with your new identity, it goes in line with your new creation, with your new selfness, these virtues of compassion and humility and forgiveness, they actually fit you perfectly. They are a perfect custom-tailored fit to your new self. And your old clothes, the old wardrobe, they actually don't fit anymore. I know you think they fit. They don't fit. So a couple months ago, I put on one of my favorite shirts, and I had tucked it in, and we were going somewhere a little nice, because that means I tucked in. And so we're tucked in, and, um, and I come out to my wife, and I go, I don't, I don't really like the way that this, this is tucking. And she, she goes, are you sure it's the tuck? Uh, <laughs> Which, touche, it's true. It wasn't the tuck. It was the new self. And, um, and, but here's what she's saying. Here's literally what she's saying comically, which we, we jokingly now walk around and say, you sure it's the tuck? That's kind of become a family phrase. Really fun. Uh, but so she, here, here's what she's saying. Hey, you know you're not your old self anymore. You know, you know you're a new person now. And the old clothes that used to be your favorite ones that you used to wear all the time, they don't fit you anymore. Something's changed big time. And so you, you've, you need new clothes to wear. 
That's exactly what Paul is saying here is the old clothes, they actually don't fit you anymore. It's not the tuck. They just don't fit you anymore. And he's imploring you, Christian, wear these new clothes because they're custom fit for you. In fact, Paul is so adamant here in Ephesians 4 and lots of other places, this language is so stern and so strong from Paul, he's actually saying to us, it's dangerous for you to try to squeeze into your old clothes. You are such a new self. You have been totally made new by Jesus in such a profound way. The old is gone and the new has come. You are a new creation. Actually, and this, this is, this is kind of next step, next layer down, that when you and I try to squeeze into the old clothes, when you and I try to put on the old self, we end up committing an act of self-betrayal. And self-betrayal, trying to fit into my old clothes, that's not me anymore. Trying to fit into my old self, that's not me anymore. Self-betrayal will destroy us. Betrayal will destroy you and you commit it against yourself anytime you try to wear a set of old clothes and not put on the new clothes. Here's the, 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 the gravity of what Paul's saying. Anytime, Christian, you don't practice forgiveness, you don't practice compassion, you don't practice humility, you don't practice meekness, all these things, anytime you don't practice those things, you're destroying yourself because it's actually in line with who you now are. And so the call to put on the new clothes is actually the call to step into who you really are now. They fit you perfectly, even though it doesn't feel like it. They fit you better than the old clothes. Your new self has a new wardrobe. And when you try to fit into the old, you commit self-betrayal and do harm to yourself and harm to others around you when you betray yourself that way. These new clothes are fit for your new, truest self. So who are you now? Who are we now? What is your truest self that the new clothes have been custom fit for? Why would these new clothes, this, this new set of garments, why would this new wardrobe fit your new self so well? Well, he says it in the opening lines of, of opening words of verse 12. We could camp on the, the identity statements he makes in the first couple words of verse 12, but he does it also, and we're going to camp here as we close. He says it in verse 13. Listen to, listen to the statement of declaration of who you are now, an identity statement, new self, that the new clothes fit perfectly. He says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Forgiven. That's who you are now. That's your new self. That because of Jesus, you are one that stands now with no debt. You owe God nothing because of Jesus. Your sin put you in his debt. Your sin accrued a debt against him. How? You robbed him of his glory. Your sin takes his honor away because you bear his image and your sin mars that image. We spit on his worthiness. We defecate on his holiness. We betray his loveliness and we all accrue a debt against the Almighty. He was love incarnate and we despised him. We were his enemies and we have accrued debt against the creator. And yet... Hear the words of Jesus as he hangs as the crucified one from Calvary. These are Jesus' first words as a crucified man. Listen to what he says. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Or let me translate that a little bit different for us. Father, 
Cancel the debt they owe us, for I feel pity for them. Your debt has been canceled by Jesus. Father, cancel their debt. They don't even know what they're doing. Do you hear buried in this statement of forgiveness from Jesus, the offer of forgiveness, the canceling of the debt before you've even acknowledged you needed it? Jesus offers forgiveness before confession even occurs. He cancels debt before the debtor even knows how to ask for it. You owe God nothing. He declared you forgiven before you even knew the size of the debt. And now you don't owe him proof that you understand how much you've sinned against him. You don't owe him merits that will make some down payments and chip away at the principal amount. You don't even, know, you don't even owe him an acknowledgement of the fact that you really get how bad you've hurt his heart by sinning against him. You don't owe him anything. You owe God Nothing, because Jesus canceled your debt before you even asked for it. Or in the words of former Duke Divinity professor, a man named Stanley Hauerwas, brilliant, brilliant biblical scholar, said this, it seems that Jesus does not understand that we, that is, we who assume modern accounts of responsibility, it seems that Jesus does not understand that we need not be forgiven only when we know what we have done. Here's what he's saying. Um, Jesus doesn't forgive like you and me. Jesus isn't waiting for you to fully acknowledge what you've done before he forgives you. He's saying we who assume modern accounts of responsibility. See, we think we need to fully understand and know all the ways we've sinned before we could really understand and experience the forgiveness of it. Jesus doesn't require your awareness of the debt before he cancels it for you. Father, forgive them. Father, cancel the debt that they owe. They don't even know how bad it is. Look, if we're honest, there are elements about each one of us that are so indefensible and not only are they so indefensible where you couldn't justify it, you couldn't write it off, you couldn't explain it away the debt that you've incurred and, and people would maybe go, oh, it wasn't that bad. There are elements of all of us that are indefensible. So indefensible, in fact, that there are elements of all of us that we don't even know that are indefensible. Like that's how bad it is that there's elements of each of us that we don't even know how bad the debt actually is. That if, if you're lucky and God's merciful to you, you might see like 4% of your debt. It's in God's mercy that he's not showing you the other 96% because you'd probably want to go take your own life if you saw all of it. And so here's what Paul is saying. Here's what Jesus is saying is that the debt is so great, Jesus canceled it before you could even come to terms with how much you owed. And he offers forgiveness before you even acknowledge that you need it. The Son of God, who is also the judge of all the earth, has taken the hit for you and offers you the cancellation of debt free of charge for the debt that you know you have and the debt you didn't even know you had. So now, Paul says, as a forgiven one, now, as one who owes nothing your new set of clothes that fits you perfectly with your new self, your new wardrobe is this, forgive others. Freely you have been given, freely give. Freely you have been pardoned, freely pardon. 
freely your debt was canceled. So freely cancel debt, Paul is saying. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable that gets at this very reality that Paul is referencing in Colossians chapter 3. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable. It's a parable about a king who wanted to settle all the debt accounts that he had in his kingdom. And he goes to one of the people in the kingdom that had occurred a debt against him. And the debt amount, we're told in the parable, is 10,000 talents. And that, that number or that, that monetary amount is maybe last on, lost on us a little bit. Let me explain the amount of debt that this king is going to clear up with one of the people that owes him some money. A talent was the highest known denomination of currency in the ancient world, in the Roman Empire. It was 20 years wages. It's the highest form of currency, highest word for currency in the entire Roman Empire. So a talent, 20 years wages, and then Jesus says 10,000 talents. 10,000, again, it's this astronomical number. 10,000 is the highest word that they had in Greek for any given number. They didn't have a word for higher than 10,000. Myrios is the word, where we get our word myriad. So he's saying this person had 10,000 20 years wages that he owed. 200,000 years wages this person owes. Have no idea how he got in this bind. <laughs> but the superlative nature is what, he's literally using the highest possible, highest possible currency, highest possible number. 10,000 times 20 years wages. So I don't care what tax bracket you're in, this is an astronomical, unpayable debt. That's the point. He literally couldn't say a higher number. 200,000 years wages. Modern calculations of this put it somewhere in the trillions of dollars this person owed. And the king in this parable goes to settle his account, so he starts with his biggest one, I assume. And the amount is unpayable, and so everyone who's listening to this story that this king has a debt to go collect on of 200,000 years wages, everyone knows there's no way anybody could pay that off. And so uh, everyone's expecting, well, then the normal practice would be when you have someone who can't pay a debt, then if, they can't pay, if they can't pay it off, then you are allowed, rightfully, legally, to arrest them and their whole family, their kids, their grandkids, their great-grandkids, and throw them in jail until the debt is paid off. And it will never be paid off, so you will enslave this entire family system for the rest of their days, and they will always be in debt to you and your family. That's what everyone's expecting, and yet the king comes to this man and to the astonishment of Jesus' original audience, the king, we're told, pities the man, it's the same word as compassion, has compassion on the man, and what does it say? Canceled his debt. Not only will he not sell him into slavery, he requires no repayment of any kind. The king cancels the debt and has compassion on the debtor who owed him 200,000 years of wages. And it would be a sweet little story, a sweet little parable if it ended right there. But then the man who just had his debt canceled leaves that place and either in a moment of fear that this is too good to be true or in a moment of shame or arrogance, I don't know, the Bible doesn't say. But in a moment of something, he decides to go and round up his debts that is owed to him so he finds a man that owes him 100 denarii, or three months' wages. And this man who owes him 100 denarii is unable to pay the amount. And so the man who just had his debt canceled, we're told in the parable, chokes this man 
and has him thrown in jail for the debt that he owes but cannot pay. And so when the king who cancels the astronomical debt hears about this act of vengeance from the other, he has this unmerciful man thrown in jail himself until all his debt is paid, which essentially means forever. And here's the point. Here's why Paul references that parable from Jesus in Colossians 3. Is that God has so eternally and astronomically forgiven us. He has forgiven such immense a debt that we had against him that it should be unthinkable for the Christian to refuse to grant forgiveness to each other. That the sins that others commit against you, they are real. It is real debt. But it's three months debt and compared to 200,000 years of debt is what Paul is saying and what Jesus is saying. And so the idea that you would not cancel someone's debt, that you would remain in a superior position and hold them in your debt and throw them in jail and lock the key so that they will never be able to repay you, that Paul, according to Paul and Jesus, that's, that's not allowed if you're a Christian. <laughs> that unforgiveness, bitterness, grudges towards anyone, those are old clothes Paul would say. And not only are they old clothes, but when you and I try to squeeze ourselves into old clothes and blame the tuck, like that's, that's what we think is the problem. Man, this don't fit anymore. I guess it must be something wrong. Something wrong with me. And it's probably something wrong with the clothes. That when we, when we live in our old clothes and get defensive about it and prove why we're allowed to hold people in debt and they don't know what they've done, and that would be, whenever we get into that mode, it's the number one indicator, the number one radar going off, the, the red noise, the, the, the sirens roaring to let you know you've completely forgotten about the debt that's been canceled for you. That when you and I hold people in our debt, that's all I need to know, that you've forgotten how much you've been forgiven. And if we, when we, refuse to put on the new clothes, to put on the new clothes of compassion and forgiveness and meekness and kindness we're not just making a mockery of the debt that's been canceled for us. We are literally acting against our newest, truest selves. Because a true sense, a true understanding of the astronomical, undeserved forgiveness that I've been shown, when I truly understand that, I will go and produce forgiveness. I will go and forgive others. When I understand that I've been freely given, truly, I will freely give. I can't hold my wife in debt if I actually know the 200,000 years of debt that's been canceled for me. And so if we have a problem canceling debts, it's because we have a problem with our debt being canceled for free. But let me put it this way. If you can't cancel debts in your relationships, then you are probably still trying to pay your own off on your own. And you're gonna make other people do that because that's what you're doing. And the moment you get a glimpse of the free grace, the grace of God that says all of your debt has been canceled, Father, forgive them for they don't even know the 200,000 years that they owe me. Father, forgive them and it's free. When you get a glimpse of that, you will not be able to hold someone in debt to you anymore for three months wages. And Paul would say here, this is who you are now. This is your new self you are a forgiven one who owes God nothing and a sheer act of infinite grace has canceled your debt. Now, Christian, put on your new clothes because they fit you perfectly. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for we know not what we do. 
Guide us now, we pray, as we come to your table and we eat and we drink of the, the work that has freed us and the work that has forgiven us. Give us Sabbath rest this day, we pray. From the rest we try to achieve, may we set it down and receive your grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen.